Well, I'm um, doing an extraordinary amount of teaching this weekend. And the Lord is so far being good and holding my voice together. So uh, we will continue and look at Leviticus chapter 24 together, verses 1 through 9 this morning. Um, as many of you uh, are aware, there were a number of us who were away at a men's retreat this, this weekend, and uh, I had a couple of opportunities to open the Word of God there, and we had a wonderful time, um, both in teaching and fellowship, gathering together with brothers from other churches, and uh, it would be um, uh, such a blessing if next year, if you weren't able to get there this year, that you would make plans to join us. It is a uh, truly a wonderful and uplifting time. We are going to look today at Leviticus chapter 24 verses 1 through 9. Verses 1 through 9. Let me just read that uh, as we begin and then we will come and examine it together. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the sons of Israel that they might bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. Outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamps in order on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. Then you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. You shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. Lord, it is our prayer this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we're continuing to work our way through this great book of Leviticus, this book of the law. We are on track, Lord willing, to finish Leviticus at the end of next month at which time we're going to launch into a series of messages leading up to Christmas, and then we will begin the new year by returning to the New Testament to cover some of those few remaining books that I have not preached through yet. Today we're going to look at just the first nine verses of this chapter. They pertain to lamps and they pertain to the bread of the tabernacle. If your lamps were going to be of any use, you needed oil to keep them lit. 
And you'll remember that one of the pieces of furniture which was to be placed in the tabernacle was a table covered with pure gold, and upon this table was to be the bread, or the show bread, or the bread of presence. This bread was to be kept in the sanctuary just outside the Holy of Holies. These lamps were to be lit, and there was to be bread on this table at all times as a token or a sign of the access to God which he had granted to the people through the priesthood. That's why all of this was placed just outside of the veil, outside of the Holy of Holies. Now let me outline this passage for you today in three parts. You may, as I was reading, thought there would only be two, but I like to surprise people. So there are three parts to this passage as we'll be dealing with it today. First of all, we see the word of command in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. We've seen so many chapters and portions of the book of Leviticus open this way. It would be very easy just to pass right by, pass over those words as kind of throwaway words, which hold no real significance to us. But that would be a mistake. Every book of the Bible, every chapter, every paragraph, every sentence, every word, every jot and tittle in the Scripture is significant. All Scripture is inspired and profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate for every good work. All Scripture is significant. Now, not all Scripture is equally significant, but it's all inspired and it is all profitable. That's precisely the reason that by the time we're through, we will have spent nine months in the book of Leviticus. It's why as we read through the Scripture every Lord's Day, we don't skip the genealogies. And it's why when we come to statements that we have seen over and over again, we don't just pass over them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, these words have great significance because they remind us that everything here being commanded is not being commanded by Moses. It's not something the priests have invented. Everything that is to be done by the people of God in the worship of God in the ministry of the tabernacle is the result of God's direct commands to His people. These are not commands issued from some priestly caste. They are not ideas originating in the mind of Moses. These are the commands of God being communicated both to the priests and to the people and there's a very practical significance for that and we're going to look at that but here I am, I'm getting carried away already and this is just supposed to be the outline. In any case, that's the first thing that I want you to see this morning. And then if you look at verses 2 to 4, you'll see the commands pertaining to the children of Israel bringing olive oil in order to keep the lamps burning in what we might refer to as the narthex of the Holy of Holies. Inside the tabernacle, there are to be lamps burning continually. There is always to be light in that tent, which would otherwise be quite dark 
right? The tent itself was to be constructed of layers of material, and the light, even during the day, would not be enough to light the room. As a result, God commanded that there were to be lamps burning at all times, and the people of God are exhorted there in verses 2 through 4 to bring olive oil to make sure that the holy place is illuminated. And we're going to see today that this had both the practical effect of providing light where there was darkness, but also a symbolic effect, which is seen first in the Old Testament and then in its fulfillment in the New. Then finally, we're going to look at verses 5 through 9, where we see the command concerning what is variously referred to as the bread or the showbread or the bread of presence. The bread of presence is to be placed in the presence of the Lord, hence that version of the name. And again, there's both a practical and symbolic significance bound up in that command. So those are the three things we're going to be looking at this morning. Verse 1, where the command is given by the Lord. Verses 2 to 4, the command that is given to bring oil for the lamps, pure olive oil to light the lamps in the house of the Lord. And finally, verses 5 through 9, the command to bring the showbread, the bread of presence. Now, the first thing we're going to learn from this extraordinarily rich passage today is very simple and straightforward, as I've already laid it out. It's something we come back to again and again here at Red Mills. It is simply this. God's people are to keep God's Word. This first verse of the chapter comprises a single command, and it is a command about other commands. It's a command to Moses to pass on a command to the people. And we see that if we cheat a little and bleed down into verse 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the sons of Israel. So we find here that which we have mentioned earlier. That the command which is going to be spoken in verses 2 and 4 and the command in verses 5 through 9 these do not originate with Moses. It's not coming from Aaron and the other priests. They're not just making this up as they go. It comes from Yahweh to Moses and then is to be communicated from Moses to the priests and the people. The totality of the command is spoken by the Lord. It is delivered to Moses who then delivers it to the priests and the people. Now, you'll remember, of course, why this is. If you come back with me to Exodus chapter 20, I want to show you something to remind you of just how important it is to pay attention to these words and phrases that we might be tempted to pass over in our study of the Scripture. When we come to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, we read these words, which are quite similar to the words that we find in Leviticus 24, verse 1, with one notable exception. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 says, Then God spoke all these words, saying... And of course, in Exodus 20, God goes on to speak the words of the Decalogue, 
the Ten Commandments. Now, I wonder if you caught the difference between Exodus 20, verse 1, and Leviticus 24, verse 1. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, God simply speaks. Then God spoke all these words, saying. But in Leviticus 24, verse 1, God speaks specifically to Moses, and Moses passes on his words to the people. Now, why is that? It's because of what we see later in Exodus chapter 20. When God spoke directly to the people without the mediation of Moses, the people didn't take it very well. Scan down to verse 18 in Exodus chapter 20. While God was speaking, there were a lot of other things going on as well. Verse 18 says, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Now that must have been quite an experience. You know, as often as as I've read this passage, something struck me about it just this week that I'm not sure I've paid attention to before. But it's the trumpet. And I do mean the trumpet. You'll note there are four things that accompany God speaking forth these ten words, the Ten Commandments. One of them is a trumpet. Now, it would be understandable to read through that too quickly and to read it improperly. Quite often when trumpets are mentioned in Scripture, they're spoken of in the plural. In fact, we just saw that last week in chapter 23 of Leviticus, where God says to Moses in verse 24, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by the blowing of trumpets a holy convocation. So it would be easy to pass over what we see in Exodus 20:18 and to read it wrong. It wasn't trumpets, it was the trumpet. That definite article there is very important. It might also be easy for us to make assumptions concerning who is sounding the trumpet. If we've just come to verse 18 without having carefully read everything that comes before, we might assume that some Israelite was blowing the trumpet. But if we take the time to go back and we read the context of this, we see something else. If you jump back, for instance, and you look at what's happening in chapter 19 and verse 16, we read this. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now, earlier, up in verse 13, we read about a ram's horn. Verse 13 says in chapter 19, No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned and shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. 
When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Now, a ram's horn would be similar, I suppose, to a trumpet in those days, but it is different. And here, it is a ram's horn being sounded by a man calling the people of Israel to a convocation, to gather together. But this trumpet that we read of is something else entirely. It's not an earthly trumpet at all. It is a divine trumpet which accompanies the, the appearance of God, just like the thunder and the lightning and the smoke. And what are we told about that which will accompany the future appearance of God when he comes to earth once more? When Jesus returns, there will be the sound of a trumpet, a single divine trumpet and when that happens God will once again speak and he will speak without a mediator for the God who speaks on that day will be the only mediator between God and man the Lord Jesus Christ when God spoke from Sinai how did the people react not well they said to Moses Speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. And so when we read in Leviticus 24.1, instead of reading that God spoke all these words saying, we read instead that the Lord said to Moses. And when God speaks, how are we to respond? For those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, for those of us who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, we too are to respond in obedience to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, even though it is communicated to us through a mediator. This morning, we are opening the very word of God. He has spoken in his word. And yet that word this morning is being communicated to you for good or ill through me. And it is just as authoritative, though it comes through a mediator. God has spoken, and we are accountable to what he has spoken. We are to respond to the scripture, recognizing it as our final authority, our final rule for faith and practice, recognizing it as the ultimate authority over our lives and over Christ's church. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, the idea is to remind the people of God again that these words are not simply Moses' words. They are not simply the priest's words. They are God's words and therefore to be obeyed. So that's the first thing that we see here this morning. Keep God's word. Second thing we see is in verses 2 through 4. The command of these verses is pretty simple. Keep the fires burning. Keep God's word. Keep the fire burning. The people of God are commanded to bring pure oil for the lampstands in the holy place. Now these lamps were to continually burn, we're told in verses 2 through 4, and the priests had the job of assuring that that would be the case. 
The priests are responsible for everything going on within the tabernacle and ultimately the temple. Now, we've already said that the command had both a practical and a spiritual significance. The practical significance is very direct. It's simply this. Having light there just outside the Holy of Holies enabled the priest to carry out his ministry, to do all of those things that were his duty to do. He couldn't have done it in the dark after all. And the duties which the priests were to carry out were all part of providing access to God for the people. The people could not approach God directly. They needed mediators. And the worship of the tabernacle provided those mediators. Those mediators were the priests. That's what a priest is after all. One who is able to come before God into His presence and mediate on, the, on behalf of the people. And so having a light enabled the priest to fulfill the rituals which were required of him so that through the priests, the people could have access to God in their sacrifices and ultimately through the high priest on the Day of Atonement as he brought the blood into the Holy of Holies. So the light functioned in a very practical way in order to aid the people of God. Very practical significance. But it's not hard to see the symbolic, spiritual significance as well. This light represented that which showed the way into the presence of the living God. The obedience of God's people to this command to bring Pure olive oil ensured that the holy place was illuminated, which not only served the practical purpose of enabling the priests to perform their responsibilities there in the tabernacle, but also symbolically pointed to the great blessing and goal of communion with God. Now, as glorious as that picture is, it doesn't compare to the glory of its fulfillment in the New Testament. We are roughly two months away from our celebration of the Incarnation. It would be quite appropriate to preach Leviticus verses 2 through 4 as a Christmas text. You'll remember the old man Simeon. He's been waiting all his life to cast his eyes upon the Messiah. And finally, now deep into his old age, in God's providence, that blessed day arrives. Joseph and Mary are taking their child to present him at the temple on the eighth day after his birth, as is their responsibility. And Simeon is there, at the temple, and he sees this family coming toward him. And he knows. And Mary knows. And something very special is about to happen. Mary must have known what mother would otherwise hand over her newborn baby to a stranger who would have clearly been quite emotional 
in that moment. But Simeon reaches for the baby, and Mary places that child in the old man's arm, and there, resting in the crook of his arm, Simeon beholds the promise. He beholds the promise of God fulfilled in flesh and blood. And he knows. And you remember what Simeon said about this child. He has been given as what? A light to the Gentiles. He is the one that shows the way of access to God, not only to Jews, but to Gentiles as well. Now think of another old man. At least he's old at the time that he writes this. The Apostle John, the beloved disciple. Now, decades after the events which he sits down to record, and as he begins the writing of what we know as the Gospel of John, one of the first things that comes to his mind as he thinks about his beloved Lord is this. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then again in verse 9, John says that this one, Jesus, was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And so John himself is emphasizing that Jesus himself shows the way of access into the presence of the living God, just as the olive oil and the lit lamps outside the Holy of Holies showed the way into the presence of God. But that's not all. Later in that same gospel, in John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus himself says that he is the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So Jesus himself says it. I am the light. Not only do I show the, access, show, show the way of access into the presence of God, I am the way of access into the presence of God. Now, simply seeing the words of Jesus in reference to himself there in John 8 is wonderful enough. But when I first came to understand the background of those words... It was one of those experiences of illumination that you just cherish and you always hope for more. You see, those words of Jesus were uttered against the backdrop of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. We spoke about this feast just last week in our study of chapter 23. For one week each year, every Israelite family would construct for themselves a booth, their own personal little house. And they would live in it for a week. They would take leaves and palm branches and such, and they would construct this little shelter. And in that shelter, they would live one week out of the year. Now, with the building of Solomon's temple... And then after the exile, the rebuilding of Herod's temple, 
there were various events and ceremonies that came to be associated with the Feast of Booths. These ceremonies are no longer conducted because the temple no longer exists. But they were taking place when Jesus celebrated that feast. One of these ceremonies was called the illumination of the temple. The Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish oral tradition, describes the ceremony. There would have been four 75-foot-high candelabras erected in the court of the women. Each candelabra had four branches, and the top of every branch was a huge bowl. Four young men bearing 10-gallon pitchers of oil would climb up ladders to fill those golden bowls and set them alight. So picture this, 16 beautiful blazing fires leaping toward the sky from those enormous golden lamps. And since the temple was set on a hill, that glow was a sight that the entire city could see. This, by the way, is also probably what Jesus had in mind when he said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. This was as close to a fireworks display as the people of Jesus' time were ever going to come. What a glorious sight it must have been. Now when people see things that inspire awe, there are typically two responses. There may be perhaps great excitement and gasping and shouts. Or, and I believe this to be the case on this occasion, there's silence. And because of what John tells us and how he describes this, I am sure that there was silence. Because it is here As the bowls are lit and the entire city is lit up in the darkness of that night, that Jesus now steps up. And in the glow of those enormous lamps, his voice cuts through the silence. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so there is this glorious New Testament fulfillment of the symbolism of the light in the tabernacle. That Jesus himself is the light of the world. Jesus himself is the way of access into the presence of God. Jesus is the light of life. He not only shows the way to God, He is the way to God. And here, all the way back in the establishment of the ceremonial code is the picture, a type, a foreshadowing of this glorious truth 
to take place thousands of years in the future. Now, very quickly, there's one last thing I want you to see. It's in verses 5 through 9. We've read it already. If we are to keep God's Word, if we are to keep the fire burning, we are also to keep the table set and ready. Here the people of God are commanded to take fine flour and to bake 12 cakes and to set them in two rows. And those cakes are to be replaced every week. And the obedience of God's people to this command ensured that the bread of presence was always present there before the Lord. And once again, we're seeing something that has both practical and symbolic significance. The practical significance, of course, is that the bread was part of the provision for Aaron and his sons, and they were to eat of it in a holy place. They were to eat of it in public, in the presence of everyone, there in the temple, so everyone could see that what was supposed to be taking place within the temple is indeed being done. The priests are being faithful. So this eating of it in, the, in, in a holy place was designed at least in part to remind the people of God of the communion that they have with God by following the provisions of the ceremonial law. And they were seeing that those ceremonial provisions were being fulfilled. And there were to be two rows of cakes, we're told, six in each row, clearly intended to symbolize the twelve tribes of Israel, the totality of the people of God. But the very presence of the bread in the tent of meeting was also designed to remind the people of God that God had provided for them their daily bread and that God had made provision for their every need. And so the practical and the spiritual significance of the bread of the presence in the tent of meeting was first to remind us that God has provided for our every need and the people of God were to remember at all times that the bread in the presence of the Lord told them they were God's people and He would make provision. It's a beautiful symbol. God's table set and ready. Remember, when this was spoken, when God gave this command to Moses to be given to the priests and to the people, where were they? They were in the wilderness. There's not a lot of supermarkets in the wilderness. So God had to provide for His people, and He did. Manna, quail, they had been provided for by the hand of God. And of course, like the oil and the lamps, there is this New Testament parallel. You remember the feeding of the 5,000 as it's recorded in John chapter 6? You remember that uh, there were made available to Jesus five loaves. And from those five loaves, he fed 5,000 people most likely much more than that. It's, the text says 5,000 men. So you add women, you add children. It's more than 5,000. And when it was all said and done, he commanded the disciples to take baskets and to go gather up whatever bread was left. 
And there were how many baskets? Twelve baskets. Just as there are twelve loaves of bread. We're to be reminded that the entirety of God's people are provided for by their Lord. And it's precisely in that passage, in John chapter 6, verse 35, John chapter 6, verse 51, that Jesus will say what? I am the bread of life. Jesus is saying to the people gathered there that day and to us gathered here this day, if you want to know the providence and the provision of God, if you want to know communion with God, then you need to trust me. You've got to eat of my flesh because I am the bread of life. You've got to put your trust in me alone. There is no other. You must have faith in me alone because I am the only thing that can give you spiritual sustenance. I am the only one who can provide for you all that you need. It's a beautiful picture that we have here in Leviticus 24. The Lord spreading His table and having it ready for communion with His people. The lights are on. The table is spread. And the Lord wants His people to commune with Him. And that's what we're doing here today. That's what He desires. He has sent His Son, the light of the world, the bread of life, so that in Him you might have life both now and forever. You see, this is not just a promise of God's provision of our material needs. This is God's promise of the provision of a Savior. A provision of redemption. And it is a provision which God offers freely to any who will accept it. If you will come to Jesus, the provision is yours. When Christ went to the cross, He shed His blood for the forgiveness of sin. And that sacrifice made on the cross will save every individual that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world. It is enough. It is enough to save any who will come to Him by faith. His blood is enough. It is sufficient for the entire world if the entire world would come. Jesus would not have to shed one more drop of blood. It is sufficient for you if you have not laid your sin at the foot of the cross. If you have not trusted in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. May today be that day when you recognize that God has made provision and He has made that provision in Jesus Christ. Do you remember what David said at the end of Psalm 23? He said that the Lord had spread a table before Him in the presence of His enemies. You know, everyone who remembered the history of Israel would understand what David was talking about. Because this table in the tabernacle spread with bread was spread in the midst of a camp that was moving in the wilderness in the midst of enemies. 
enemies of the people of God. And it's in that context that God said, I'm going to provide for you. Whatever you need, I am going to provide for you. I hope you hear that this morning. And you receive all that God would provide. The lights are on. The table is spread. Come and by faith eat. Father, thank you for your provision. Thank you for the glory of your word. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, the light of the world and the bread of life. We are grateful. And it is in his name, Father, that we express it. Amen.